0: It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 92, which along with Psalm 91 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, August the 5th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We are continuing our look at the Book of Judges, chapter nine, verses one to sixteen, and then nineteen to twenty-one, along with the Gospel according to John, chapter two, one to twelve, and in um, the Book of the Acts, chapter four, verses thirteen to thirty-one. So remember now, yesterday where we ended was it was the death of um, Gideon. And remember, Gideon had seven sons and then an extra one, in some ways, by his concubine who lived in a place called Shechem. And so what we're going to see is is that that, that one, the child of the concubine, is going to become prominent here in today's lesson. That we're going to see what this child is going to do. And this is Abimelech. And I told you yesterday that we're told what his name is in order that we could then uh, see... From that, we'll we'll see him going forward. He's the only one who's who's named initially in the um, in the in the uh, telling of the sons of Jerubbabel So anyway, this we're we're going to look at him today in his life a little bit um, to see what he did after the death of his father. So Abimelech the son of jerubbabel went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So he said, look, it's going to be difficult to sort out who's next in the pecking order, who's going to rule, but the assumption is that it'll be one of the sons of Gideon. Well, that could be divided up among 70 people. So you've got a choice, right? You could have any of those 70 people, or one of those 70 people, oh, oh, and by the way, remember, I'm in your tribe. <clears throat> and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf, on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, father being Gideon. So he's not in Shechem now. He's gone to Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. I mean, this is brutal, absolutely unbelievable what he's done here. He killed all the sons of Gideon, save one. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left behind for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. So they're making him king, and so in some ways he, would, he could be seen as the first king of Israel, but he's not. He's not king of anything. I mean, it's sort of like Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. Look here, Alice, this is the way it works in this house. I'm the king, and you're nothing. Do you understand that? Yeah, Ralph, I get it. You're the king of nothing. Well, that's what it is. He's the king of Shechem, because that's, that's who made him king. He's not king over Israel. He's king over Shechem. And Shechem ultimately becomes the Samaritans, actually, and we believe that's where the well is that Jacob uh, gave to the Samaritans. The well where Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman is in Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, the son who lived, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried out aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, because Shechem is the foot of Mount Gerizim. And remember, when Jesus talks to the woman, she says, Our fathers say it's on this mountain where we're supposed to worship. That's the mountain that she's speaking of is Mount Gerizim. So listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees went, once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go whole sway over the trees? And the tree said, The fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go whole sway over the trees? And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. So this parable that he tells must have been something that they would have recognized. But what we've done is we've started with one of the chief trees, the olive tree, and then gone to the fig tree. And we're coming down a descending order at some level, although these are all productive and important things. And now you come to the bramble, which is useless. It produces nothing of value at all. And so they said, Okay, let's let's make it the king because nobody else will take the job. Now, therefore, he says, if you've acted in good faith and integrity in exactly the same way as the bramble said to the trees when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and his house today, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him rejoice also in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and devour Beth. Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech his brother. So what he said is, is, is that you know that you didn't do this in good faith. You're absolutely sure that this was not done in good faith. And so what he's done is he's called down a curse on the people of Shechem over this uh, treasonous act of anointing Abimelech as king because they've taken matters into their own hands and done this thing. They didn't do it with good faith because they, they chose him because he was one of them, and that's the only reason they chose him. So the, it's important that we choose the right people for the right jobs, but we choose the people God chooses, that we don't do it. We don't choose somebody simply because they're um, they're one of us. And so that's exactly what they've done, and that's all that they have done. And then he's proven that this was a treasonous and treacherous act by going out and killing the other sons who might have had a claim to the throne. He's getting rid of all the uh, competition in this. Now, nobody ever said that even the judges were a a hereditary line. We see it with Eli and with Samuel. We see that with Eli, the expectation is his sons are going to take over because they're acting as priests, but they're wicked. And so God chooses Samuel to be the last judge. So it, here he, he's very clearly told this parable in such a way that there's no way they can see themselves as good guys, and there's no way that they can even argue that they did it in good faith. And the proof would be the murder of the other sons of Jeroboam. Here in the gospel today, we get the third day, the third day after um, John and Andrew would have been with Jesus. Um, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Remember yesterday's lesson, what we were told was is that, that Jesus decided it was time to go to Galilee. Well, here's the reason that he goes to Galilee, is to go to this disciple. He was invited or to the wedding. I mean, he was invited with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There's kind of a presumption around this, that those two things are related that it's because Jesus brought extra guests that there's a shortage of wine here at the feast. And so that's the reason that Mary would have said something to Jesus about this problem. Now, what she expected him to do is a completely different thought. Um, and Jesus' response to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? It would be the same way to call her mother. It's not, it's not disrespectful for him to refer to her as woman. My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to step into this role yet. I'm still waiting for the Father to call me into it. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary obviously had some sort of idea that Jesus was going to do something here. In spite of the fact that he didn't seem to be sure of that. So there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Mary must have had a, a role of some sort at this feast. Um, she might have been the one overseeing the catering, let's say, um, on the back side. And the master of the feast was out front, making sure everything worked there well there. So she maybe was in charge of the back of the house. So the servants. So Jesus says, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And they probably were thinking, well, this must be part of the wedding ceremony itself must somehow involve this water for these purification rites. And he said to them, now draw some out and um, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. You you can imagine the trepidation. Unless when they pulled it out, they knew already that this had been turned into wine. But you can imagine the how odd this must have felt for the servants to say, "We're going to take. We filled up these things with water. We know exactly what's here, and yet now we're going to take this to the master of the feast." Either they didn't know what this was about because they weren't Jewish, and, and maybe they hadn't seen Jewish weddings before. So maybe they did this thinking that that it was for some other purpose. They were taking it to the master of the feast we just don't know so when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from though the servants who had drawn the water knew it the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then the poor wine. but you have kept the good wine until now so jesus didn't just make wine he made the best wine and in enormous quantities 180 gallons of wine is a huge amount of wine, so so between 120 and 180 gallons, because it says the jars were each holding 20 or 30 gallons, and so what we would assume is there's a sort of a mix of some that held 20, some that held 30, but this is an enormous amount of wine. You couldn't drink this much wine in a, in a wedding feast if it, if it had 600 people there. You wouldn't drink that much wine, <clears throat> this, the first of signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what we know is the servants knew what had happened, and the disciples knew what had happened, but we don't know if the people at the feast knew, because I don't think they did, frankly, because I don't think the point was to draw attention <laughs> to Jesus here at the feast. It was, it was to avoid the embarrassment of running out of wine, but not only that, it was to point to these people as really remarkable people because they get all the credit on the front side of the house. At least they get all the credit. And on the back side of the house, you get the disciples, Mary and the servants, and they knew the truth about what had happened. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So Jesus is, it's an auspicious while at the same time inauspicious beginning because it wasn't publicly known what he had done. It, it, it was a matter of calling the disciples and convicting and convincing the disciples. Now, was Nathaniel wildly impressed by this miracle as the same way that he was that he knew him? We don't have any earthly idea, but we know that they believed in him. Now, what did they believe is a completely different issue. I mean, they believed surely that he was more than just a rabbi. They believed that he was, he was something special that he was capable of things nobody else was capable of. And so they see this, but it's done privately and quietly, as it were. But it's still remarkable. So <clears throat> remember yesterday in the Acts lesson we had yesterday, remember Peter and John had healed the man at the, uh, at the beautiful gate, the man who had been born lame, and then they arrested them because they were speaking in the name of Jesus, and then they were brought to trial before the Sanhedrin yesterday. And so then they proclaimed to the Sanhedrin, we did this in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. So now they're having their little confab, the the Sanhedrin are. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. So not only are they bold, but wait a minute, these guys are just fishermen. They're not educated men, but, but here they come lecturing us, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's the most important thing. We want people always to recognize that we have been with Jesus. We want them to see in us that we have been with him, and therefore something's different about us. It's important for us to spend the time with Jesus, to take the time in prayer, to take the time in meditation, to read with a devotional idea about how we're reading, to be with him. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny that. But in order that it may spread no further among the peoples, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Yeah, that'll do it. Will it? I mean, they, let's see. They healed this guy in the name of Jesus. And they seem determined for everybody to know that he was healed in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's do this. Even though they stood defiantly before us, let's go tell them not to speak in his name ever again. Okay. (laughs) So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I mean, you can imagine the the incredulity with which Peter and John would have received that edict. Hey, here's what we want from you. We don't want you to teach or preach anymore in the name of this Jesus of Nazareth guy. So they answered. (laughs) Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you have to judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, what they're saying is, is that you're nothing. We're listening to God directly. We don't need you to be an intermediary. We don't need you to bring the oracle to us. No, we have direct relationship with God in the same way that Adam did in the garden, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I mean, they didn't get into all the theology of that, but that's exactly what they've said, because they've said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. In other words, we are listening to God. You clearly are not. Because we can't do anything but speak in the name of Jesus, of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, <laughs> they let them go. It's hard to threaten somebody who knows about resurrection. Right? who's seen it, who, who has participated in that. So they threatened him, and then they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we talked about that a couple of days ago, that, that this guy is, I mean, he's been around 40 years, but we were also told at the beginning of this story that he was lame from birth. So this guy's been around at least 40 years And he is suddenly, completely, miraculously healed and made whole. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they, the people, their friends, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So what they're appealing to here is Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, that they're quoting from Psalm 2 in this passage right here and saying this is the situation we find ourselves in today. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, the Lord and his anointed, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, these Romans, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they're comparing this, this raging this this determination, as it were, that Jesus would be crucified, they're comparing that to Psalm 2. Now, did Herod and Pontius Pilate want to crucify Jesus? No. Pontius Pilate, we know, wanted to appease them, but he wanted to give them Jesus and and crucify Barabbas. But but here they've said this is the fulfillment of what David talked about in Psalm 2 because it it included the rulers of the earth, but it also included the people. So he says they gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they didn't slip something past you and force you to make an adjustment to your plan. No, what they said is you knew it all along. You knew this all along. And so you you brought all these people together in order that Psalm 2 would be fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. They came against the Lord and his anointed. So we see what you did there. We see it. We know that it was your plan, that it it didn't defeat your plan. It was your plan. You didn't have to adjust. Nope. They just were the agents by which it was carried out. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, who is it that made the threats? The threats are the Jewish leaders. This is not the Romans. It's just the Jewish leaders. At this point, they don't have anything to be concerned about about the Romans. The Romans are ignoring it, by and large because it doesn't affect them. It's just this Jewish squabble, this internecine squabble among these Jews, and so they're not going to worry about that. So that's exactly what they're praying about here is is they said, look on their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. So help them to ignore those threats and the people who make them. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed throughout through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So their expectation is that if we proclaim with boldness, you'll continue to do the kind of works that that will draw attention and bring people to you and authenticate the truth of the message. And as I've said many times before, we should have that same thought in our mind still today. We should expect the Holy Spirit to continue to do signs and wonders, to authenticate the message of the truth of the gospel. The, the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, the continuing work of Jesus in the world today. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The church needs to pray that way. <laughs> we, need to, we need to pray for boldness. But we can only do so after we repent of failing to speak with boldness. And we need to, to turn to Him and ask that He give us the boldness. That we need and that we give us the faith that we need and that he would accompany the proclamation with signs and wonders